0: Well, as the worship team is making their way back to their seats and kids are heading downstairs, let me just uh, pray over you, God's people, today. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, it has been another week on planet Earth, and that means, Lord, that it has been a week living in the midst of the wreckage of a fallen world. God, all around us, we see the evidence of the fall. We see it in broken systems, we see it in broken people and broken relationships, we see it within our own fractured and broken inner world, we see it in a a world full of geopolitical rumblings and pandemic, and God, there is so much out there, and everywhere we look, in every direction, whether we look within ourselves or without into the community or out around the globe, God, we see the horrifying evidence of a world that has fallen into a million jagged little pieces in the fall. But Father, you're beginning to put the pieces back together through the church. Father, you're beginning to set things back to rights within the lives of your believers. God, we are all this muddy mix of a new person, a new creation who is struggling to put off the old man And so, God, we know that in this past week, we have at times fallen short of what we know to be your commands. And, Father, we have at times uh, been hurt. We have at times hurt others. God, we come into this place today not as good people, but as people who very much need your grace and your mercy. We sing it. We proclaim it. We know, God, that as we gather before you, you do not look upon us as though we were dirty and wrong. You look upon all your children who are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ, and you welcome us. Your mercies are new every morning. You are a God who is gracious, you are love, Father, we revel, we delight ourselves in who you are this morning. And God, we look upon our circumstances in light of who you are and who we are in relationship to you. Father, I know that in this room there are things that are seen and unseen. There are desperate struggles. There are things that are not yet known even to the person who is about to go through them. But Father, I ask for each one of my brothers and sisters that you would give them this day just exactly what they need and the ability to trust you for what will be needed tomorrow. God, I pray, Lord, you would give them all that they need to represent you well in the midst of their circumstances, whatever they may be. And Father, we ask together with one heart that you would speak to us this morning through your word in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Speaking about living in a fallen world, uh, in this life, we just will experience lots of different storms. You will, there's lots of different storms that we experience in life. Some of them just come out of left field. There is nothing that you did to deserve them. There is nothing that happened that, at which we could lay blame for that at anyone's feet. It just kind of happens. Job said that as, as surely as sparks fly upward, man is born to trouble. Man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. I, Jesus himself said in John 16, In this world you will have trouble. One of my least favorite promises in scripture. (laughs) But there it is, stated pretty flatly. You will have trouble. And sometimes, but the great news for Christians is that trouble has purpose. Trouble is full of purpose from God's perspective. He is always using trouble. I, I like to make the remark, and I've made it before, that you can't become more like Jesus without trials than you become smart without being educated or strong without working out it's just impossible. This is God's chosen tool in the midst of this fallen world to make us more and more like the God who saved us, like Jesus, to conform us to his likeness. So trials happen, and they have purpose, but sometimes there are trials that come upon us specifically because of our wayward disobedience. Because we have knowingly sinned, God gives us a taste of what it is to walk away from him. I was thinking, and then so as we're talking, working our way through Jonah, that is a very specific kind of trouble that we're addressing. And we can really get into trouble by speculating about what species of trial somebody else is going through. Please don't do that. In John chapter 9, you might remember this scene. We actually covered it one time here from the pulpit. But Jesus is walking with his disciples. They're right outside of the temple, and they, they see a blind man, and they say, tell us, Jesus, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And right there, they're trying to speculate on what species of trial this guy's going through. Tell me, who did the bad thing that this has been visited upon him? This is the same mistake that Job's friends in the book of Job make with him. They say, Job, why is all this bad stuff happening to you? Just confess. What evil thing have you done? In both cases, they were wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Jesus said, I tell you, it's not because this man sinned or his parents sinned, but that the glory of God might be revealed in him. That's why this has been happening to him. And Job's, Job, actually the trouble visited him not because of any wickedness, but specifically, explicitly because he was a righteous man. So we need to be very careful about trying to identify why are bad things happening. That's not why I'm interested in bringing this up, but the Bible does In the book of Jonah is speaking to a very specific kind of trouble that does visit Christians, followers of God, when they knowingly disobey him. When God says, go to Nineveh, and they say, nope, I'm going to Tarshish. When God says, do this or don't do that, and we say, nope, I'm going to not do that or I'm going to do that. Uh, When I was, uh, I used to work, I did for about 10 years at Camp Maranatha in Southern California, When Camp Maranatha first started in 1951, a really wonderful Christian couple named Errol and Juanita Hunt, they served as the camp's first directors. They built a lot of the buildings, they really built the camp uh, in, in the way that it's currently constituted. And they had a son. I got to know him because he still lived in the town when I was working there at the camp. At one time I was asking him about the early days of the camp where I was working, and he told me a very funny story. Uh, there in the summertime they had a snack shack and he had keys Uh, there were lots of keys hanging around the camp and one he would oftentimes take his dad's keys and go let himself into the snack bar (laughs) and help himself to candy bars and sodas and things so one day he went down there when he thought nobody was looking and he unlocked the snack bar and went in and he was helping himself to something and his dad came along found the door to the snack bar unlocked with the keys hanging there in the lock And he's like, oh, somebody made a mistake. Locked his son in the snack bar. (laughs) And there's no way out. There was no escape. He couldn't unlock the door from the inside. He was trapped. He said, I sat there for like three hours trying to figure out how am I going to get out of this mess. And finally, he just started wailing. Help! (laughs) He wouldn't have died. There was plenty of food in there. But eventually, his dad came and unlocked the door. And he had to ask the question, what were you doing in there? And of course, he knew. But see, that is that is the kind of trouble that it, that's similar to the one that Jonah finds himself in. Jonah finds himself in the predicament he's in, not because of God's general purposes in suffering, but specifically, this is a chastening storm that he finds himself in. This is a rebuke. This is meant by God to bring him back into line with God's purposes and really What God is fighting for, what God is chasing, is Jonah's deepest joy. He's not willing to let Jonah wander off to his own destruction or live a life that is less than what will bring him the fullness of joy. John 4.23 says this, But the hour is coming and is now here, this is Jesus speaking, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And brothers and sisters, pay attention to this fact. God is seeking worshipers. This is what he is seeking. This is who he wants. Worship is the primary function of the church. Even evangelism, we oftentimes talk about evangelism as one of the more important things we do as Christians. Think about this. Evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Evangelism is the effort of gaining worshipers to God. I've often thought about how the first, how the command to Adam and Eve to go and fill the earth is essentially the same as the command given to the church to go and make disciples of all nations. Both commands have at their heart a command from God to go fill the earth with worshipers. He wants worshipers. And this is really the main point of the book of Jonah. God is not seeking fanboys. He's not seeking admirers. He's not seeking even dutifully obedient servants. He does not want your servile obedience. He does not even want people who will open their checkbooks. He is seeking worshipers. Now, what does that mean? There is a way of praising God that is empty. There is a way of serving God that does not honor him for who he is. And for every seeming act of worship, if it is not motivated by love, it's just noise. It's just a religious treadmill. It is something less than the fullness of what God would have it be. In the coming weeks, we will see that God will not be satisfied when Jonah's obedience is finally given to him. This is the, one of the strangest things about the book of Jonah. Jonah finally does exactly what God tells him to do, and the story is not over. God is not happy. God is not satisfied. God will not be satisfied when Jonah surrenders his volitional will to the task of calling the Ninevites to repentance. Why? Because it is not worshipful. It is not flowing from a heart that agrees with God's heart towards the Ninevites. Jonah will still hope, even as he is obedient, that the Ninevites reject the call. Although Jonah knows and understands the character of God, he does not share in that character. in this account, preserved for us in the pages of scriptures, documents God's patient pursuit of this one man's heart. How much easier would it be to follow God if all we had to do was like an automaton or like a robot, just do exactly what he said and not have to feel it? Wouldn't that be better? <laughs> That's essentially the way the Pharisees followed God. I will check all the boxes, but I won't have your heart. And Jesus said to me, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And he was not satisfied. How difficult it is to follow a God who commands feeling. Who commands that Jonah's heart be changed, not just his behavior. This is really the challenge. This is the difficulty of the book of Jonah. There are many Christians today who have heard a lot of good Bible teaching, who know the righteous commands of Scripture. They know and understand a lot of important things about God. They know who God is, what he is like and his mighty works. But they are not serious about becoming like the God they follow, they claim to follow in the quiet places of their hearts. Many people set aside God's commands when it suits them. They replace his righteous judgments with their own judgments. They replace his will with the pursuit of their own agendas. They don't speak, or they do speak, when it is popular to do so in front of others. And by doing so, they seek their own glory rather than his glory. And, brothers and sisters, I'm not just speaking anecdotally here, I'm not just waxing like a preacher. speaking in a hyperbolic way. You ask Barna Research Group, you ask anyone who is studying the statistical trends of the American church today, and this is happening very quickly before our own eyes. The American church, like so many Jonas, are replacing God's righteous view of things with our own lowly human view. The uh, French satirist Voltaire once said, God created man in his own image, and now man is returning the favor. (laughs) Uh, He meant that to have a very low view of the Christian religion. He was not a fan of the church at all, and I hesitate to even quote Voltaire from up here, Uh, but I think he has a point. I think a lot of people do seek to make man in their own God, in in their own image, rather than being shaped by him. Jonah is one such man, Rather than obeying God's call to the Ninevites and call them to repentance, Jonah is going to do something different. Jonah felt a genocidal hatred in his heart toward the Ninevites. And really, that is perhaps a very natural way for him to feel. After all, the Ninevites had behaved with genocidal hatred toward their own neighbors. However, the story of Jonah points us to a supernatural way of thinking and feeling toward our enemies and not a natural one. We might look at Jonah and sympathize with the man. That might be how I'd feel. But we are followers of a God whose ways are not our ways, whose thoughts are not our thoughts. As we walk with him and as the Holy Spirit shapes our inner world, we begin to see the supernatural evidence of a different way of thinking and doing flowing from us. Not perfectly, for sure, but sometimes we even surprise ourselves that when God shows up and gives us a different way of looking at a thing. However, rather than obeying God's call to go to the Ninevites, call them to repentance, Jonah goes in the other direction, and in doing so, Jonah betrays a fundamental misunderstanding about God and what it is to be a worshiper of God. Jonah apparently thought that the thing God wanted most from him was a service. Jonah's view was that God wanted him to do a job for God. And that view of the dynamic between God and man points to a prideful, fat-hearted, Jonah-centric view of the world. I'm needed, I'm a somebody. The truth is though, God doesn't need human beings for anything. God doesn't need any person to do anything for him. And it also is not true that God wanted Jonah to do something for him. He wanted Jonah's heart to change. Do you remember when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem in the week leading up to his crucifixion? The people were shouting praises to him. The Pharisees tried to get Jesus to rebuke the crowds and make them stop. But do you remember how Jesus responded? He said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. (laughs) If these people didn't do what they ought to do, I would cause the stones to do it. Jonah is not needed for this simple task. It is not what this is about. God doesn't need Jonah. He doesn't need us to do anything. This Christian life is not about doing things. So what is it? What is it about? It is about having a relationship with God and who we be in our heart of hearts, not what we do. It's not, what we, it's not that what we do doesn't matter to God. Of course it does. It's that it only matters if it flows from a right heart. Consider this in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm willing to bet you're all familiar with these words if you've been a Christian for any length of time. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Does it matter what you do? No. What matters is the spirit with which you do it, the heart. If you sing praise songs without love, you're just noise. That's what that's saying. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If you give away all you have, and deliver up your body to be burned, but have not love, you gain nothing. The difference between being just noise and being nothing and gaining nothing is the spirit, the heart with which we do a thing. Speaking of the last day, Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. There's no more chilling words in all the Bible, I don't think. This Christian life is not about building a resume of works. I did this. I did that. I gave X amount of dollars. It is about being conformed in spirit and in truth into the likeness of Jesus Christ. In your heart. What is a disciple of Jesus? It is a sincere, from the heart, imitator of Jesus' example. And God's aim in Jonah's life was not to coerce him into doing what he wanted him to do, as though that were the main point. God's aim in Jonah's life was to make him who he wanted to be. He wanted Jonah... And he wants us to be like the God who has saved us. You know, oftentimes when tragedy visits the life of a believer, we hear Romans eight twenty eight 28 uh, quoted, which says, And we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Those times when I have heard that verse shared and times when I have shared it myself with people who are hurting and reeling from one tragedy or another... The idea that I'm trying to convey and that many others are trying to convey is that God is going to redeem this somehow. Uh, Right now, this is just confusing and it hurts, but we need to believe and trust that God is somehow going to bring something good out of all this awfulness. And I don't disagree with that. I think that is a true understanding of that verse. God does bring good things out of bad, but when we read the next verse, verse 29, an important truth emerges about the good thing that God most wants to bring about through the dark seasons of our lives. I've already read verse 28. I'm going to read it again with 29 added on so you can see the flow of reasoning as we go right through. And we know that God works all things for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. For Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. One of the most important good things that God intends to bring about through our time in the belly of the fish, speaking uh, metaphorically, is that we would be conformed in there more and more to the image and likeness of Christ. And the question is this morning, do you find yourself in some dark place today? Uh, If so, the story of Jonah should be very encouraging to you. We often ask, why do bad things happen to good people? But when we reflect on the story of Jonah and we see how God has behaved toward the evil people living in Nineveh and his wayward, hate-filled, unloving prophet Jonah, we become overwhelmed with a different question. Not why do bad things happen to good people, but God, why would you strive? (laughs) Why would you strive and work so hard to bring about so many good things in the lives of so many wicked people who straight up do not deserve it? God, why would you visit so much good upon the wicked? That's the question we walk away from Jonah with. Unfortunately, the question that fallen man most often poses is why do bad things happen to good people as though there were such a thing, which scripture says there are not. But rather, why does so much good does God visit upon the evil? God is a wise shepherd God. And if any of his sheep stray from his flock through disobedience and now find themselves in a dark, desperate place, they should know this. God's aim in bringing you to that place is not, first and foremost, to reform your conduct. He is not trying to twist your arm to do what you do not want to do. That is not his primary goal in your life. His goal is to transform your heart. His goal is to bring you to a place where you have new passions, new affections, a new perspective on things that results in a new treasuring. That is his number one goal. Last week, we left with Jonah in the belly of the great fish. And at the end of that service, I talked a little bit about what that must have been like for Jonah. I don't mean to dwell upon the unpleasant idea of the whole thing, but I do think it's important for us to have this in mind because when I was growing up, every drawing, every flannel graph representation of Jonah I ever saw or a Farside comic, or wherever it was, had Jonah sitting there looking glum but thoughtful in the belly of a cavernous animal. He had liberty of movement. That is not how it was, my friends. It was like being buried alive in a form-fitting heavy rubber bag. The temperature would have been very uncomfortable. There would have been very little oxygen. He would have been awash in the gastric juices of the animal. What little air there was would have been constantly flowing with noxious acidic fluid designed by our God to break down flesh and material. It would have been a horrific place to spend three minutes, let alone three days. I am somebody, I I naturally struggle with claustrophobia. I could never serve on a submarine, for example. The thought of being in a small space, confined with a huge weight on top of me, and bearing in all around, is absolutely terrifying to me. That's where Jonah lived for three days. It was truly awful. And that's where we left Jonah last week, He'd been thrown overboard by the sailors, swallowed up. And chapter 2 is Jonah's account of the sort of things that he prayed to God while he was inside of the great fish. It's a short chapter. I'm going to read it to you now. This is his prayer in Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O my Lord, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. We'll stop right there. Apparently, Jonah was conscious inside the fish, at least for enough time to pray. So when we read the details of the little little snippets of details of the sorts of things he prayed, keep in mind that when Jonah refers to the distress of the past, he means the time he spent in the water not the time he is spending in the fish. He is praying with thanksgiving to God for the fish. The water was death. He even says that he was, imagine he's down in the water and he can't even swim to the top because the seaweed starts wrapping around him. He's horribly lost down there. He remembers God, he calls out to him and God saves him by having him get swallowed up in this fish. So the fish represents salvation in the mind of Jonah. The cry of distress, distress is past tense in the water. The voice of thanks for deliverance is present tense in the fish. And verses one and two, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. There is the simple statement that sums up what happened when Jonah sank in the water. He cried out to God, and God answered him by sending a fish. And there is a lot of encouragement for us here that I want you to see. The general point I want to make is that God answers his children when they cry out to him from a dark place. And really, let this, let, I hope you guys hear this. He does this despite Jonah's guilt. God answers our cry from our dark place even when we find ourselves there because we were wrong. We were disobedient. He was guilty of that. That's why he was in the water. And if you're in trouble right now because of disobedience in your life, you might be wondering this. Will God hear my cry now when I tuned him out all those times that he tried to speak to me? All those times when I knew the right thing to do, I knew the right way to go, but I went, nah, 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 nah. all those times he tried to chasten me, correct me, call me back, and I stopped up my ears and kept going in the other direction. Now I find myself mired in the consequences of my wayward disobedience. I can't call out to him now when I tuned him out for years before this. Can I? Can I? Look at Jonah, guys. Look at Jonah. God does not say to Jonah, you made your bed, now lie in it. He does not say, you wanted to see what it was to walk away from the presence of God? Here it is, enjoy it, eat it up. That is not who your God is. And that is not why God is allowing you to go through the difficult thing you're going through, despite your wayward disobedience. God loves when his children finally say, okay, (laughs) I'm calling out to you now. I'm doing it. You might wonder, is there hope? Will God have mercy on me and hear my voice when I cry from this dark place? I don't even think there's a point in talking to God when I ignored him for so long. Well, take heart from Jonah. His distress, his reason for being there, this trial, this belly of the fish moment, is happening because he was bad. He was disobedient. He was wayward and wicked. He disobeyed God directly. But God answered him and gave him another chance. If your disobedience is the cause of what you're going through, repent, cry to the Lord. He will answer you despite your guilt. There are two points worth considering about this prayer of Jonah, the little snippets that we have here in the book of Jonah. One, it is noteworthy for what it lacks. Nowhere in here does Jonah say, I was wrong, or I'm sorry, or God, help me love the Ninevites. That never happens in this account up to this point, or all the way up to the very end of the book. I think when I was a kid, I tended to view the, the belly of the fish as the fulcrum on which the story turned. It was the turning point. This is the moment when bad Jonah becomes good Jonah, and that is not true. That is not true. Jonah is one of the only books, and we'll see this in a couple weeks, that ends with a question mark. <laughs> it just kind of hangs there like a bad smell in the room at the end of the book. That's what it's like. The change in Jonah's life happens after the details of the book of Jonah. Think about this. Jonah, to me, in the Bible, it is very difficult to find a figure who is less self-aware. I mean, look at the absurdity of this moment, where Jonah, hard-hearted Jonah, wants God to visit vengeance upon the wicked Ninevites. But as soon as he starts to feel the vengeance of God, he says, don't be like that. Be a God of grace and mercy. Don't do to me what I wanted you to do to them. He's just not, it's like the world ends at the tip of Jonah's nose. The hopeful thing about this though is this, all of the details of the book of Jonah were known only to who? Jonah, Jonah. All of these private conversations with God, all of his hidden motives for what he's doing, the only one who knows that is Jonah. Jonah is responsible for portraying Jonah in this unflattering light. Jonah, I don't know if Jonah was the original author of the book or he told his story to others who wrote it down. I don't know that, but I do know this. We wouldn't know anything about who Jonah was unless Jonah had said the full, honest account of who he had been. I think Jonah carries with it is written in a strongly confessional flavor. I think Jonah is the testimony of an older, wiser, more mature follower of God who's telling us about, in a cautionary tale kind of way, this story of who he used to be. <laughs> and I think that's what's written down for us, that we might learn from his mistakes and not follow him in them. But the change in Jonah happens after chapter four, after the close of this book. He's gonna continue with the main problem of the book right up to the last, last letter of the book. He does not say I'm sorry, he does not say I was wrong. What does that mean for us? It means that God remembers you're made of dust. It means that you do not have to be perfect you do not have to have it all together at any point in your life as a, as a follower of Christ for God to be moving you incrementally along towards a place where you are closer to, what, to God's heart. I think that as I look back over the course of my life, what God has done is he has brought me along in stages. Uh, he was doing things for me in my teens that I had no appreciation for at the time. And that maybe I don't even see fully now. Maybe I never will. God begins to deal graciously and mercifully towards Jonah, even before he has repented fully. Jonah calls out to God to save him, even when he has not yet repented of the problem. He still probably thinks the problem is I didn't do what God told me to do. When he jumped, I didn't say how high. He does not yet understand that the problem is his heart. His problem is his hatred for the Ninevites, and he has not yet even begun to address that with God. But God delivers him even when that's still the case. He at least has enough sense in this moment to cry out to God and say, help. And God does. And that's very hopeful to me. It's very encouraging, because if you are right now in the midst of a dark place, you probably don't have it all together. Don't wait until you do. Just cry out to God. Let him bring you along by degrees. Be, be yielded, soft-hearted towards him. Ask him to change you. Ask him to mold you and shape you. And he will begin to do that. The second thing here that is noteworthy is his thankfulness for being in the belly of the fish. I have to credit John Piper for some of these thoughts. He helped me see this. God often delivers us in stages, and some of them are not very pleasant. We need to get out of our heads the all-or-nothing notion of answered prayer. I think we can be fairly sure that when Jonah cried out to God as he was drowning in the sea, he did not say, God, send a great fish to swallow me and let me stew in its juices for three days. (laughs) That probably wasn't his prayer. His prayer was simply, help, deliver me, save me, don't let me die here. And God answered that prayer in a very surprising way. John Piper says the belly of a fish hardly seems like salvation, but it was. Jonah is granted enough consciousness to realize he has been spared from drowning and that there is hope. In his prayer, he does not complain about his surroundings. He sees God's first stage of salvation as a guarantee of further deliverance and concludes his prayer in the fish's belly with the great affirmation, deliverance belongs to the Lord. We should not disregard the partial works of God. You may still be uncomfortable, but as you look back on your journey, can you begin to see the signs of God's grace and mercy towards you? If he chooses to save and to heal by stages, he has his good purposes for those seasons of our lives. And we ought to be grateful for any improvement in our condition. A fish's belly is certainly better than the weeds at the bottom of the sea, even if it's not yet dry land. God answers us in stages, not all of which are comfortable. And I want to close with this thought, which is just a teaser for next week's message. Uh, This chapter ends with this in verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Uh, This is, I think, um, a, a really important verse to see. Uh, and I think we've talked about this on other Sundays before, but my experience living and, and walking among Christians and my own experience and how I have talked about my own salvation is that Christians tend to talk about their salvation as though it were only a matter of having been saved from something in the past. Like if you said to most Christians, what does it mean that you're saved? They'll say, well, I, God saved me from my sins. And that is certainly true. The Bible is clear, though, that that is only half the truth. Jonah is saved from the fish. That's true. But more than being saved from something, he is saved to something. Jonah wasn't vomited up so he could go home and be glad that he was still alive. You haven't been saved, so you can just fat-heartedly revel in the protection you enjoy in God. That is not the fullness of it. You have been saved. You have been delivered from a dark, desperate place. But fellow Christian, we need to see, know, and understand that just as Jonah was delivered to a task, we have been delivered from and delivered to. We have not been delivered from sin and death so that we can just go about our lives, minding our own business, enjoying the benefits of salvation while feeling no burden to go and tell others. We were brought forth from the grave, as it were, that we could go forth under his banner proclaiming the good news of the gospel. The wickedness of this world has risen up before the Lord, and God has pronounced a judgment on it, just as he did upon Nineveh. He has told us to go and call them to repentance, for if they will not, I will visit wrath and judgment on the world. Our story is very similar to Jonah's. We have heard just as Jonah did that God intends to bring wrath upon a people if they do not repent. The Great Commission says to go and call people to be disciples, to go forth, call them to repentance Jonah's story is really our story. We've been given a very similar assignment, and woe to any Christian that doesn't answer the Great Commission calling. We cannot just talk about being saved from sin and death and live as though we have not been called to go preach to the Nineveh of this world. You have. I have. And that's what we're going to begin talking about next week as well, as we continue to see how God um, chases down Jonah's heart in this matter. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we have heard in your word the clear command. Jesus said after he was resurrected, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We know the Great Commission calling to go and tell. And Father, tomorrow as we see Jonah go and tell, Father, I pray, Lord, you continue to speak to us about how How our hearts can catch up with what we know to be true. Father, that is a difficult thing for us. That you are the God who commands emotion. And uh, Father, that is a difficult command for us sometimes, just as we see it is here with Jonah. But Father, I pray that as we study the life of Jonah, you would show us more and more how you intend to do that in our own lives. And Father, I pray, Lord, for me and for my brothers and sisters here at State Road, that we would be soft-hearted, yielded towards you, obedient. God, give us a heart to go with your commands. God, I pray that uh, the gospel would rise as naturally in our throats as song in a bird, that it would just come out with the ease of a reflex. God, I pray, Lord, that when the Ninevites of this world hit us, God, that we would just bleed Jesus. God, I pray that in all the difficulty that we find ourselves in, God, and just because we live in a fallen world, God, that we would make you visible in in the midst of those things. And Father, if I have any brother or sister who finds themselves in the midst of a dark place, in part or in whole, because they stopped up their ears to what you were saying to them at some point, You were clear in what you instructed them, but they decided to go another way. And they find themselves now in a dark place, wondering what your heart is toward them, wondering if they can pick up the conversation with you, or if you are saying to them, you've made your bed, now lie in it. God, of course, we know from our time in Jonah this morning, that is not your heart towards your wayward prophet or towards us, your wayward disciples. Father, I thank you for being so full of grace and mercy. And Father, I pray that they would cry out to you, that I pray that you would give them a heart that allows them to repent. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would bring them along by degrees, by stages, into a better place. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. We thank you for the way you pursue us, even when we run away. Thank you for not letting us wander off to our own destruction or to a life that is less joy-filled. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would be with us this week as we seek to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.